Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. This is the Daily Blast from the New Republic, produced and presented by the DSR Network. I'm your host, Greg Sargent. On Tuesday, a federal appeals court ruled in a powerfully worded decision that Donald Trump is not above the law after all. The court shot down Trump's demand for immunity from prosecution for alleged crimes related to his effort to overturn the 2020 election sinking his effort to avoid facing a jury of his peers. Trump is expected to appeal this to the Supreme Court, which raises a question. What does the timeline of Trump's trial look like in coming months, and how will it dovetail with the presidential election in November? Trump's strategy of delay, delay, delay could still work out for him, but there is a scenario in which it backfires on him very badly, and to discuss this possibility, We've invited on former federal prosecutor Barbara McQuaid, one of the best legal commentators out there. Welcome, Barbara. Oh, thanks, Greg. Glad to be with you. First, let's talk about the appeals court ruling. It's telling that it's both very strongly worded and unanimous with a conservative judge on board. Can you talk about that? Yes. So we had... um a conservative judge, we had a Bush appointee, we had an Obama appointee and a Biden appointee on the three-judge panel. And one thing I thought that was really interesting is they did not identify who authored the opinion. It was instead authored per curiam, which means you know by the court. And so I think that was an effort to show a very united front. And I think that was very important politically so that people couldn't say, well, it was written by a Biden judge or a Bush judge or an Obama judge. You know, none of that should matter. And by uniting behind that name, I think they sent that message loud and clear that this is just from the court. This is the law. 
One quick thing about the ruling. Uh, Trump argued that he can't be prosecuted for alleged crimes related to his January 6th conspiracy because he was merely pushing, pursuing official acts as president, that he was seeking to ensure a fair election in keeping with his duty to faithfully enforce the laws. But the appeals court knocked this down forcefully, pointing out that he actually had a presidential duty to faithfully enforce laws governing the transfer of power, which he disrupted. That's the core of the matter, isn't it? He was placing naked, extraordinarily corrupt self-interest above the national interest while claiming this constituted official acts. It's striking that the court said this so strongly, no? Yes, I think so. You know, there's um, a lot of... uh flowery language in here about uh, separation of powers and the constitutional structure and the effort to make sure that our government has checks and balances. But one reason this argument has always been so weak, and the court calls it out here, is Donald Trump said, I was just taking care that the laws be faithfully executed when I reached into Georgia and I was contesting all these election results around the country. He may have been doing it as a candidate and as a citizen, but certainly not as president. It is not the role of the president of the United States to be involved in the administration of elections. That is for the states to administer. And even after the opinion, Donald Trump's public remarks have been all about um, restore presidential immunity. The president has to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. He is suggesting that this court opinion has somehow taken away some power of the presidency when in fact um, it was Uh, It is checking him from abusing power that he never had. It's just breathtakingly depraved on every level. Uh, What happens now with the Supreme Court? Uh, Some have argued that this is a very clear-cut case, that the high court has no reason to weigh in and should just affirm the appeals court ruling. But, But special counsel Jack Smith has said the case has ultimate public importance, so the court might want to weigh in. Can you lay out the range of options and why the Supreme Court might opt for each one of them? Yes. So Jack Smith, back when he made those representations, he was seeking to leapfrog this D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and go directly to the Supreme Court. Now that we have this decision, maybe he will change his tune and withdraw his yeah. <laughs> his petition uh, and say, no, we're good. Just let's let's move on. Uh, but I, I certainly expect that Donald Trump will. And of course, this court has um, stayed the mandate, meaning we're not going to return this to the trial court. Uh, until Monday to give Donald Trump time, if he wants to, to file a petition with the Supreme Court. They did not give him that grace period if he simply wants to pursue what's called an en banc appeal with this court, um, an opinion of the whole court as opposed to just these three. So presumably, if he wanted to do that, that would be okay. But the case would resume in the trial court in the meantime, very telling about their, what they think is the strength of this decision. Uh, so I imagine Donald Trump will file a petition for review by the Supreme Court. The court could simply say, no, thanks. We think the D.C. Circuit got it right. Looks pretty good to us. Uh, we're done. You know, hands clean. Move on. Let's let's go. Uh, that would be the quickest scenario. I think the case would go back to uh, the trial court and uh, we could pick up where we left off. Now, we've lost a few months in the meantime while this case has been working through the Court of Appeals. And so I don't think we could have the trial tomorrow or even even March 4th. But I think we could have a trial in the spring, you know, maybe 90 days or so. Uh, on the other hand, it could be that the court agrees and says, this is a matter of significant consequence. We want to look at it even if only to put its own imprimatur on this decision and give it the strength of Supreme Court approval, that's a possibility. And in that case, they could do it one of two ways. They could either take it on an expedited basis, 
just as we have seen the court do with regard to the 14th Amendment question and hear it very quickly, um, you know, it would still take a month or so, I think, for briefing and oral argument and a decision, even in the shortest. Or it could say, we're going to look at this, this take, we're going to put this on its normal track and we're going to ask for briefs. And it could even be they don't hold oral argument until next fall. So if they wanted to really slow walk this, they could take it past the election. I'd be surprised if they do that. I think they will either say, no, thanks, we're done, or they would hear it on an expedited basis just because the issues are too consequential and there's too much urgency here to let these linger. Right. And so we're looking at the most likely uh, scenarios here are a trial in the spring or a trial over the summer, right? I think so. I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, I want to float this scenario. Trump has obviously been employing a delay, delay, delay strategy in hopes of pushing, as you said, any conviction to after the election. His gamble is that if he wins the election, he can simply cancel an ongoing prosecution of himself. Yet it now looks as if, as a result of his delays, the trial could take place over the summer after Trump has secured the GOP nomination. That that screws over Republican voters and that they won't have the opportunity to know if he's a convicted criminal before nominating him, right? Yeah, that's such an interesting point. I, I hadn't thought about that timing difference. You know, I've been looking at the fall election, but of course the primaries are all going on right now. And the nominating convention would be a point where they could uh make a a, a candidate change, you know, change horses if they wanted to. Um and there is this disenfranchise argument, right? I mean, if you are a Republican and you cast your vote for Donald Trump now in a primary, you think he's a viable candidate. Um, if it turns out he is convicted and facing substantial prison time, he's not barred technically from seeking office. Uh, he could still seek and even win office. But I imagine there'll be a lot of voters who would decide that um, that's not my cup of tea to vote for a convicted felon who has uh, been convicted of conspiracy to defraud the United States and voter interference and a number of other crimes. So you may be right that um, a trial in the spring would be over and done with and maybe in the rearview mirror by the time fall comes around. Though if he's convicted, I think he still has some serious baggage to deal with versus a trial going on in the midst of the convention where people are seeing images you know, the court, the, the trial won't be televised, but I'm sure there will be statements from the courthouse steps and reporting every day about what's happened in the trial. And so it will be very much top of mind in the summer. And so that's an interesting theory that that would sort of backfire on him. I, I think delays his game. I think he's still trying to get it past the election and he'll take every opportunity to do that. But I think you're right that uh, if he ends up with this only little bit of a delay, it could be that this is the dominant story of the summer as opposed to the political race. Yeah, and, and it's it's sort of a weird kind of poetic justice, although I guess that's not the right phrase for it because it is it is unfair to Republican voters in, in many ways. They're the victims of Trump in this scenario, right? I mean, if he hadn't pursued this delay, delay, delay tactic, we could have known, I don't know, sometime in the soonish whether he was going to be convicted or not. And and every day that passes, he comes closer to locking up the Republican nomination, um, which, which ends up meaning that Republican voters are less and less likely to have agency in the situation once he's been, been, is on trial. Yeah, that's right. And it raises a really good point, Greg, which is so often we talk about the right to speedy trial as belonging to the defendant. And the defendant wants more time and is usually accommodated when they ask for more time. But under the Federal Speedy Trial Act, 
It is also a right of the public to have a speedy trial. Yes. For a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, having someone who's been charged with a crime at large out there, uh, not being dealt with, not being uh, sentenced, not being held accountable, not being um, uh, providing deterrence for other people. Um, all of those things, that lack of closure is a problem for the public. And here uh, you have raised this added dimension that there is this cloud hanging, not over just Donald Trump, but every voter in America who's wondering what this election is going to look like, it, you know, everybody is better served to get this, elect, this, this trial started and completed so that we know what the landscape looks like. And it's going to be a lengthy trial, you know, six, eight weeks, maybe three months if Trump puts on a lengthy defense. I mean, that might be part of his stall tactic too. put on a very, very long defense. So um, I, 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 that, that's been part of the part of the gambit. But uh, you're right. It, it could very well backfire on him. Yeah. And it could actually backfire. Yeah. I mean, it could backfire on him in another way, too. I mean, there's a possible I wouldn't I wouldn't bet bet a lot of money on this, but there's a possible scenario where the result is a conviction closer to the election than we might have otherwise had, right? Yes. I mean, if this case had gone to trial March 4th as originally planned uh, and it lasted, say, two months, three months, it'd be over by, you know, May or June. Um, then we don't have, uh, you know, uh, conventions until later in the summer. We don't have an election till November, some months later. Now, I suppose if he's sentenced to some significant prison time, there's that, that he can't get out from under. Um, but um, I think the closer in time and the fresher it is on people's minds, it seems more likely to impact their vote. Yeah, I mean, recent political history sort of offers two, two separate messages on this. Um, one is Hillary Clinton getting hit by the, the, um, the, the infamous letter from, from James Comey about, I think it was around two weeks before the election or even less, right? And I think if that had happened, I don't know, three or four months earlier, or two months earlier, and, and, and voters had had a lot of time to digest the news and figure out what it actually meant, it would have been a much different story. On the other hand, Donald Trump got hit by the Access Hollywood tape um, pretty close to the election, too, and he, he managed to survive it. So, Yeah, you know, well, the news cycle is, um, is so fast-paced that yesterday's news gets replaced very, very quickly. And so I do think the passage of time from bad news is helpful to a political candidate. Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, there's the scenario in which the Supreme Court participates in, somehow in delaying the trial uh, so that a verdict happens after the election, right? Um, I mean, that, that seems like something that is a little less likely, but I want to ask you about it because it is a possibility. The Supreme Court is getting hammered by scandals and public perceptions of it are at a low ebb. You'd think the last thing the court wants is to be associated with assisting Trump, who appointed three of the justices, helping him push the verdict until after the election, enabling him to corruptly cancel his own prosecution, no? I agree with you. And, you know, I think Chief Justice Roberts, uh, you know, he love him or, or hate him. I think he cares deeply about the uh, credibility of the institution. And I think he does not want to be seen as Donald Trump's pawn. This court is certainly very conservative uh, and willing to you know, overturn Roe by substituting its own judgment for that of the Roe court. But I don't think they are beholden to Donald Trump, the person, the man. 
Um, I know that uh, Alina Haba, Trump's lawyer, said on television a week or two ago, um, you know, he worked, President Trump worked very hard to get Brett Kavanaugh on the court. Uh, he better not forget that. Uh, you know, to hear that, it's like uh, <laughs> the way a mob boss talks, you know, and I think if anything, if I'm Brett Kavanaugh, all I can think of is, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I've got to do the opposite now. You know, that my 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 urge, my personal urge is to just do the opposite to avoid that appearance. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I like to think they try to decide these cases as they see them. But as an institution, one of the things the chief justice does have a lot of control over is managing the docket and the timing of these things. And so I think to delay this past the election would be a really unseemly look for the Supreme Court. And so right. for that reason, I think that what the most likely scenario is that the court either just allow, declines to take the case and says, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals will stand, or if it takes the case and allows Donald Trump to file a brief, uh, it, it decides it on an expedited basis very quickly, and the case is back before the trial court, and the trial can proceed in uh, you know, in the summer. Right. It's, it is hard to imagine them being willing to be associated with something that corrupt. I'm going to commit heresy here and suggest that maybe, just maybe, Supreme Court justices are not entirely above making their own political considerations. Um, if so, one can envision the court kind of seeking to split the difference, right? It rules against Trump on immunity, but rules for Trump in the coming case on whether he's disqualified from running under the 14th Amendment. Does that sound plausible to you? And, and what would be kind of running through the justices' minds as they kind of did this little balancing act? Yeah, I, I would like to think that they are not quite so politically calculating, but um, uh, Professor Steve Vladek at the University of Texas actually floated this quite a while ago, this idea that they would hear the two cases and issue their opinions on the same day, you know, say March 1st or something, doing exactly what you just said. Um, it's it's actually w w doesn't wouldn't surprise me if that's the way they come out, which is saying that Trump remains eligible under the Fourteenth Amendment, but that he lacks an immunity defense to the criminal prosecution, and issue them on the same day, because it would make the people who say that he's in the they're in the bag for Trump or they're um, they're out to get Trump, it would really debunk either of those theories, right? To to do that, uh, it would be inconsistent to say they're either helping him or they're hurting him, and so. We could see that. Uh, I don't know that they're on the same track or that they should hold one back just to be able to release them together. But I think at the end of this term, that is the likely outcome, that they will have um, ruled in Trump's favor on the 14th Amendment. They will have ruled against him on immunity. And when you look at the term as a whole, the court can say, look, we didn't rule for Trump or against him. We just called these cases the way we saw them and one went for him and one went against him. Right. I, I, it, 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 in a way, it's, it's, they could be kind of trading on public um, ignorance about the 14th Amendment case because it seems implausible on its face when, until you look into it more, you know? Um, but that's a separate, a whole separate conversation. I promise we don't need to talk about that. I want to go back to what you said about Trump's lawyer kind of leveling a mob, mob style threat at the court. I want to read you a tweet from Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr. He claimed ruling against Trump sets a bad precedent in which justice departments will regularly unleash quote unquote partisan reprisal against former presidents from the opposing party. He said, quote, Time for SCOTUS to step in, close quote. And Trump himself regularly orders the Supreme Court to rule in his favor. I mean, 
they really think the Supreme Court is there to serve them, that it owes the Trump family favors in exchange for his appointing of three of them. Is that, I mean, as, as a longtime uh, federal prosecutor and legal observer, I mean, what do we make of this kind of public conduct? It is absolutely antithetical to our separation of powers and the way our system of government is supposed to work. You may remember that there was that little um, feud between Donald Trump and Chief Justice Roberts early on in the Trump administration, where Donald Trump kept referring to Obama judges doing this and Obama judges doing that. And in his end of year report, Chief Justice Roberts wrote that there are no Obama judges, there are no Trump judges, there are no Bush judges, they're just United States judges, and all of them do their level best to try to decide cases based on the facts and the law. And then Trump responded to that, you know, in a tweet and said, sorry, Chief Justice Roberts, there are Obama judges and there are Trump judges. And so it's an ongoing feud, and it is so damaging to the institution. But I think that is part of Trump's game, which is to undermine respect for critics including courts and prosecutors and the media and uh, career professionals in government, you know, to call them the, the deep state. And um, because when critics are undermined, then their criticism loses its sting. And so calling everybody corrupt and calling everybody in the bag and calling everybody uh, the enemy of the people uh, just inures to his benefit because then he can call anything he doesn't like, you know, fake news. They sometimes refer to that as the liar's dividend. Uh, if everything out there is false, then um, if there's some true fact that's written about me that I don't like, I can just claim that's false too, and people don't know the difference. Yeah, you actually get at, at a really, at an important, deeper theme here that I wanted to ask you about. Um, just as Don Jr. did in that tweet, Trump himself has also explicitly said that if he's prosecuted in, in a second Trump term, Biden will also be prosecuted as if this will be only fair. But of course, if, if but of course, if Trump is convicted, it will be because he actually did commit crimes after having due process. And the threat of, and by contrast, the threat of prosecution against Biden is being lodged, even though Biden didn't do anything criminal to anybody's knowledge. Now, I want to ask you about what this really means, right? If you really unpack it, the Trumps are trying to push the idea that there's no such thing as a legitimate prosecution, that it's inevitably political all the way down, that the legal system can only be tit for tat. Whoever wins gets to prosecute, and, and that's right and just. Isn't that itself kind of a profoundly dangerous message in its own right? Yes. Um, it, you know, this is a page right out of Putin's playbook. I've written this book on disinformation, and in the research, uh, I read some um, scholarly treatments of the way <clears throat> uh, Putin has treated his political rivals. And the idea is to portray everybody as corrupt. <clears throat> the system's corrupt. Everybody's corrupt. If you believe in good faith that people are acting uh, in best, your best interest, then you're a chump and you're a fool. And so uh, you should believe that everybody's just in it for themselves. Get what you can when you can. And so you should follow me because I may be corrupt too, but I'm corrupt the way you like. And I'm going after your enemies, and we share enemies, and we share interests. So everybody's corrupt. Don't be a chump. Don't vote for the honest guy. Nobody's honest. Sure, I'm a, tr I'm a, I'm a crook too, but so is everybody. So get smart, uh, wise up, you, you know, um, grow up, and uh, let's see what's really going on here. And that is so damaging to democracy, and that is not how our institutions work. I have been on the inside 
at the Justice Department. And people do care about law and facts and work very hard to maintain integrity in these cases. Yeah, no, you really you put your you put your finger on it there. Trump is Trump will be your criminal president. Right. That's basically what he's saying. Well, Barbara McQuaid, thanks so much for coming on with us. Thank you, Greg. Great to be with you. You've been listening to The Daily Blast with me, your host, Greg Sargent. The Daily Blast is a New Republic podcast and is produced by Riley Fessler and the DSR Network. 